discuss about this thing? Yeah. I think they think I'm being just like a prima donna extraordinaire, you know? So, yeah, call me up. Embrace that. Okay, it's okay to be a prima donna. <laughs> Go see Barbie. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, insurance rates skyrocket for homeowners throughout Louisiana and for local New Orleans schools. But one group not facing historically high rates the oil and gas industry. And we welcome the newest reporter to The Lens who has a story from NOAA on the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus. Hey, Delaney, welcome to The Lens. Hello, happy to be here. Good. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, nice to be with you guys today. All right, Marta, first up with you, just a few weeks into the new fiscal year, NOLA Public School and charter officials were hit hard by a huge increase in insurance premiums. When compared with last year, schools this year are going to pay a 55% increase in property insurance premiums, according to a new policy. We discussed this eventuality last time, but tell us what we learned. Yeah, so we know that that 55% increase also comes on top of a 50% increase the year prior. Right. So schools are going to end up paying about $280 per child this year um, for an individual charter school paying into that insurance premium. Um, and, you know, talking to school leaders, we know that, that they have kind of been saving for this and anticipating this, but we do know that, you know, that still affects their bottom line um, and what they're looking at, what they're available or able to provide to their students. And last time we talked about this, you said that their only recourse really in all of this is to cut back on, on services, on programming. Right. Unless it's coming out of reserves, which they've been doing, um, it, it has to be from cutbacks, but you know, any, anything that's being cut back or withheld or saved is money that could be going to student services. So essentially, yes. Is there any ability to, um, I don't know, petition the state education board or even nationally for some help? Well, things I like that's this? That's a really interesting question. Um, and this speaks to a whole lot of issues, right? For Louisiana homeowners, for residents of the Gulf Coast. Um, I think what we are going to see, two, two things real quick. Um, it's interesting that you asked that question because we do know that in New Orleans, a lot of the schools used to be charter schools under the Louisiana Recovery School District. And when they were state-run charter schools, they were able to get their property insurance through uh, a state pool, essentially, based in Baton Rouge and with those risks spread out across the state. And that property insurance was significantly cheaper. And in fact, one of the reasons, or at least one of the uh, stated reasons that many of the RSD schools stayed in the RSD for so long and didn't want it or didn't come back to the Orleans Parish School Board. Um, now ruins back in Orleans Parish under the authority of the Orleans Parish School Board. Um, so then in turn, they're paying Orleans Parish uh, property um, insurance prices. Uh, I do think, you know, the local legislature or local elected officials are going to be appealing for help at the state level. But mm -hmm. I think the bigger, you know, the question there is who, who at the state wants to take on additional risk for New Orleans, right? And I think 
that's a much bigger question than just the school system. That's a bigger question for the 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 industry of the city. You know, we're a uh, we're a big economic driver of the state, and how you know how is the state going to step up and help us? Um, you know, keep pro- keeping property insurance low for schools is important to keeping families here. Is important to keeping the tourism industry staffed. I mean, all those things are tied together. Um, and I, I think the other thing to note here is that we've seen in recent months um, insurers start to pull out of other states. And we know that that has been a problem in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. But I think now that this is happening in Florida and California as well, we are possibly going to see some you know, federal interventions or at least discussion at the federal level. Mm. So we've talked for a few months now or maybe even longer than that about their um, attempt to right-size the entire system with facilities. Do you think this gives them added impetus or speed required to, to make some hard decisions about that? Absolutely. Um, and I know I spoke with board member Katie Bowdwin a few weeks ago, and she spoke about, you know, one thing that she wants to do on the property committee for the Orleans Parish School Board is, you know, even if they are going to be holding on to some buildings that they're not using for schools, is seeing if they can rent those out to whether it's daycares or other community organizations to make sure that, you know, insured space isn't wasted, essentially. Right. Um, because even though the, I think the district's portfolio of buildings is probably too large right now for what they need, they do need some reserve space for when buildings need to undergo repairs and the school needs to move. Um, or like in the case of Hurricane Ida, we uh, Kip Douglas had to relocate for an entire year due to building damage. So they do need some reserve space on hand. Right. Okay. This is a um, probably somewhat of a sacred cow to to bring this up, but I remember the the discussion and there was a lot of pushback about closing the school, the last school in the French Quarter, and they they put that decision off for a year, I think. That's a building that's wholly owned by the school district? Correct. Okay. So buildings like that, especially French Quarter or other really prime real estate, you'd think that the district would be tempted by the the dollar signs that are being, I would assume, being thrown at them for buildings like that from property developers. Oh, Caroline, I don't think we can even go there. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god <laughs> so we just we're just supposed to have schools in, in crapped out neighborhoods that have that have low property values you know what i mean like that would be the response right like i hear what you're saying though i understand marta you want to dignify that with a response <laughs> i mean we went through this whole thing a year ago with with the discussion about the school on the court um you know, it's interesting that you bring up the quarter school as an example because, you know, the city does have flood and storm protections throughout the city, but we know that, you know, the quarter is historic high ground. So what what value is there, too, in having schools located in historically uh, in places that are historically safer from water, too? So lots and lots of uh, nuanced arguments there to be made. Um, right. With the... I, there, there are attractive offers out there that, um, and that's something they'll have to consider in a way if that, if that property does end up on the surplus property list, that would be the first step of offloading any properties would be to declare them surplus property first. So that is, that is a whole process that the public can 
be involved in when things like that do happen. Those those are a board vote. Katie. Yes. You want to speak to that at all? Well, I mean, I, you know, I would say that that we have to be able to have schools in decent neighborhoods and nice neighborhoods and that if we sell off properties, school properties in nice neighborhoods just because the school board can make some money, like that would be a bad moment in time, I think. But I do think that one of the things I'm going to say, there's a bright spot here to me, maybe, I, Marta, I might be wrong about this, but it seems to me like after Katrina, we heard about all these places that were not insured, adequately insured public institutions everywhere. I covered Hanno at the time. I mean, they were just, it was a mess, right? Trying to rebuild things because insurance didn't exist for some of those entities. I mean, maybe is this a sign that we've learned our lesson a little bit is this one is there a silver lining in this news that that we actually do have public buildings insured i mean the public actually what you brought up is interesting because the public building these public buildings are insured right and part of the reason the insurance costs so much is that these are newer buildings and their uh, valuation um went up again last year so we, we have nicer and newer schools that, that are costing this much to insure. Um, you know, I think there's a probably additional ways to look at in a traditional public school system. Um, you might see a little more community use of public property in school buildings and, you know, public spaces or green spaces owned by schools. And what we have here is kind of a, you know, we're a decentralized school system, so charters run a building, run a lot, run that land, and any, you know, community events they do host are kind of, like, hosted one-off at that school, right? Like, I know the Mid-City Neighborhood Organization meets at Warren Easton, for example, but, you know, it's also possible that there are uh, ways to kind of help with those property insurance uh, and to mitigate those costs through more community use of school buildings, um, which brings up a whole other insurance discussion about... <laughs> insuring for other uses, but you know, who knows, perhaps that's another uh, conversation to be had. Right. And I, I just want to, I want to clarify or just make sure that you understand what I'm saying. Katie, what you said, we need schools in nice neighborhoods. I would add, we need schools where kids are. And if, if kids, if, if the rates as Marta has discussed with us for years now that the rates are declining, the rates haven't been keeping up with what they anticipated in these schools, and they're having to do this program. It might not, it's not going to be just nice neighborhoods, buildings that are, um, you know, poorly attended, it's going to be buildings all over the city or all over the system. And so any building that that doesn't have enough kids in it should be looked at as an opportunity if they're right sizing. Some are going to be worth more money than others, but it was just a thought, not suggesting. That's going to, that's going to start a whole lot of discussion too, because we, like we've seen this year, we've seen two different charters combine two of their schools and they essentially were the entity that got to decide which building they moved kids from school A and B into. So, you know, I think it, mm. an opportunity for more public input into that is going to be important in the future too. Um, right, but it's the families that the schools are serving. Right. That's exactly. who should have the say. Absolutely. And when we talk about the French Quarter School in particular, I just want to bring up like we do have a lot of working families who are in the school. And sometimes you, maybe you don't want the school in your neighborhood, but if the school is where your job is, that might be. Right. That's more convenient to certain families. Right, right. 
So all this leads us to the next story, which is just the flip side of this whole with this whole uh, discussion. The insurance rates that the schools faced and many homeowners have faced, most homeowners have faced throughout the um, New Orleans area, the coastal areas of Louisiana, and all of Louisiana, in fact, and all over the country, let's be serious, um, the, the insurance rates are skyrocketing because insurance premiums have gone through the roof because it's getting so bloody expensive to insure these properties that are that are at risk and and consistently see um damage and you know huge climate change effects effects from climate change however there's one industry there was a story that we um published this week it was written by Taylor Kate Brown for Floodlight that one industry has been not affected so much by insurance rates skyrocketing and that's the um, oil and gas operations on the coast. Can you talk about that, Kate? Katie? So um, Taylor Kate Brown did a nice um, report about whether LNG facilities would have trouble getting insurance given the high rates of people who live in the same areas. You know, LNG is perched right on the water. People who are on the water have such trouble getting insurance that you know, dads tell their sons that they've got the house and the house, they don't even know if they want the house because they can't afford to insure it, right? So that's, that's the reality of residents around those facilities. And yet somehow even the new facilities that are being built are getting insurance. We don't know exactly the rates that they're getting them at, but I guess if they're paying really high insurance and it's not enough that they can still afford it, that says how profitable that is, right? Mm-hmm. And um, to the point where, you know, they're just at, at a different insurance level, I guess, that they just are able to put more, throw millions of dollars toward insurance when the guy down the street is paying, you know, paying more than half of his mortgage toward insurance, right? They get to just write it in as a cost of doing business, and it just it, it their their profit margin is probably so large that it doesn't make a a dent. Yeah, that would be my guess. I don't know though because they're very even though a lot of that stuff has to be submitted to regulators so that they know that um, facilities are being insured. They don't have to say who's insuring them necessarily, or what they certainly don't have to say what their rates are. So we don't know what they're paying. We just know that they're able to get insurance when others are not. She also wrote that um, through for many of these projects that the risk is spread out over a broad list of insurers, whereas a homeowner, that's not the case with us. You know, we have our your Allstate or your State Farm or whoever it is, and that's that. It's not, you know, a whole group of people that are behind you. Do you know if there's any federal regulation about insuring these kinds of properties? I do not know. And, um, you know, it was sort of a, it was a topic that Taylor reported on that I wasn't, you know, highly familiar with, but it just felt, it felt like it resonated so well because Marta has been really following the school board um, insurance issues so closely. And then here we have, the story about it seems at least that LNG plants are able to get insurance, you know, without blinking basically. Right. 
And the irony is so thick. I mean, they're contributing, directly contributing to the continuing effects. Contrast and direct impact there is just painful. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Do you know, anybody know about actual insurers that are pulling out entirely of the, from the state? I mean, we've had more than eight insurers leave since 2020. I think that was the count, right, Katie? Um, either people have gone insolvent or uh, some who have decided to pull out. How many, Marta, did you say? I believe it's over 20 for per, per, personal insurance, personal property. I've heard anecdotally that there are homeowners that are just foregoing insurance. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that. I think the the risk is okay. Well, I can't. I cannot live and afford this insurance, so I'm gonna have to take the risk that maybe, if something really bad happens, that FEMA can help us out. That's. I mean, that and it's a, it's hard given how FEMA's been. So I don't know. It's a, it's a really rough risk. Right. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Well, pivoting to a somewhat good news story around climate, although there are caveats attached with that, we welcome our newest reporter, our environmental reporter, to the lens, Delaney Dreyfus. Hi, Delaney. Hi there. So happy to have you. So the the caveated story about good news around climate is NOAA, or the National Oceanograph- Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, released a report about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Some rare good news there, but what's the whole story? Yes, so the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is created when the Mississippi River brings uh, nutrient pollution to to the Gulf. Uh, nutrient pollution is coming from mostly from agricultural runoff that's coming from higher up in the watershed, um, but also from some uh, facilities that are right here in Louisiana, um, facilities such as those making, um, making that fertilizer to then later be shipped um, upstream. Uh, and so, yes, the... NOAA um, presented the new numbers on how large this dead zone is. And a dead zone is um, scientifically known as a hypoxic area. It's unable to sustain life because there is not enough oxygen in the water. Um, And it's happening deeper in the Gulf of Mexico and it's killing off um, bottom dwelling fish uh, and crabs and clams, but it's also affecting the distribution of commercially harvested species like shrimp. Um, And NOAA announced on Wednesday that it was approximately 3,058 square miles, which is 
smaller than they predicted in June of this year. Um, and it's smaller than the average over the last five years, but it is still larger than they had hoped. Um, they are trying to reduce this area down to uh, 1,900 square miles or less by 2035. Um, and so we're not really on track to make those numbers. It would take um, a reduction in the nitrogen load of 48% to meet that 2035 goal. And primary, the primary reason that it's lower than they had anticipated, smaller than they anticipated in June, is just primarily because of the water runoff was less, because there was less uh, rain? Uh, there was a lot of drought in the Midwest this season. Um, there has not been as much river flow through the Mississippi River. Um, so less water actually flowed into the Gulf of Mexico, and that reduced the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus runoff that ended up in the Gulf. If, if, they're, if they're trying to, to divert the nitrogen to um, decrease the size of the, of the dead zone in the future, where does the nitrogen go? How do they do it? Trying to um, work with farmers um, in the upper watershed area of the Mississippi to use less fertilizer. Hmm. Um, and it is a very interesting uh, kind of contentious issues because the farmers um, are using fertilizer, obviously, to increase their, their crop yield, but the crops are only able to soak up about half of that nitrogen that's being put on the fields. And that's why the rest of it is getting into the river and eventually getting into our Gulf. No, hey, hey, Delaney, the the dead zone, it's yeah. so it, it kills stuff on the bottom because it makes the water more cloudy. Or remind me, what's what's the, yeah. the what, what's the process like for the dummies that don't oh, know? How let me do that. Sorry, <laughs> the fertilizer runoff is going into the Gulf of Mexico. It stimulates this overgrowth of algae, um, and it's covering this area that stretches from the mouth of the Mississippi River. Um, westward and it can reach as far as the Texas border. And so as this algae eventually dies and decomposes, it sinks to the bottom and depletes oxygen from those deeper areas in the Gulf. So then when the oxygen levels get too low, it kills bottom dwelling sea creatures that can't escape and, and fish um, evacuate the area if they can. So it really, it, it kills a lot of sea creatures, but it also just changes the distribution of where everyone is, all, where it, it has made this uh, almost 2 million acre area potentially uninhabitable for fish and other species. Mm. So their efforts are are limited to getting people to stop or to, to use less fertilizer, not to try to capture it like carbon yes, capture or... Yeah, there are not currently capturing plans. Okay. Um, a, a, an injection of funds uh, is coming through the Bipartisan Inflation Reduction Act. Um, it's going to bring a total of $60 million to um, the Gulf Hypoxia Action Plan to reduce nutrient runoff. So it's all about um, these 12 states that they're really focusing on to um, implement more sustainable farming practices uh, to make sure that less nitrogen is applied primarily so that less nitrogen ends up in the river. Okay. 
What I also found interesting, there is um, a lawsuit that 13 environmental groups, including Healthy Gulf, which is an environmental advocacy organization in Louisiana, have brought against the Environmental Protection Agency for outdated water pollution control standards. Mm. Um, essentially, the standards for fertilizer plants and oil refineries, the suit alleges, have not been updated since the 1980s, um, which is allowing companies like ExxonMobil, Baton Rouge Refinery, and CF Industries, which produces 8 million tons of nitrogen fertilizer annually to dump pounds of nitrogen pollution into the river right here in Louisiana. Uh, and so the state of Louisiana is set to get 4.1 million of uh, the money that's set aside from the Inflation Reduction Act to directly combat the pollution that's coming from industry as opposed to the pollution that's coming from agriculture runoff. Feels like somebody needs to have like a floating thing with all these little seeds on it, and then the then the fertilizer makes the seeds pop, and the seeds grow in the river, and then you just pull the rug out of the river, and then you you know what I mean? It seems like there's got to be some like old fashioned way of getting the nitrogen out of the river. Katie, there's be something. that's so great. Maybe you can get I some like funding for that. <laughs> Floating seed galleries that make their way down every year. Gosh. Right. And then you pull seed galleries out and the gulf is better and you got these whatever, maybe nice flowers, you know, like. And it would be beautiful. It's an idea. Wow. You've got, you're onto an idea there, Katie. (laughs) You can solve all the problems. Instead, we just get invasive plants um, (laughs) doing well instead of our native plants. (laughs) Right. All right. Well, Delaney, thank you. Great to have you. Thank you. All right, gang. It's nice to see you all. We'll see you in a week. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus and managing editor of The Lens, Katie Rechtal. Taylor Kate Brown wrote the story on Louisiana's fossil fuel plants for Floodlight, a nonprofit newsroom that investigates the powerful interests stalling climate action. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>